The title of my sermon is Believe It to See It. And if you think about it, that's the exact opposite of the way most people are, right? I, I grew up in the Midwest, and if you know most people who grew up in the East Coast or the West Coast, the Midwest is just that area that they fly over. It's real annoying. But uh, I remember sometimes we'd be talking about something, and a friend of mine would say, well, I'm from Missouri. Show me. You know, show me what you're talking about. And, you know, it's a show-me state. But uh, the Bible is is in reality, the exact opposite. Uh, Jesus has been preaching and performing miracles in Galilee for some months now. His home base is in Capernaum. And for, for some time, um, he, while he was down there, he finally decides to make a journey up to Capernaum, or I mean up to Nazareth. The, the amount of time, we're not sure. He could have been there just a few months. He could have been there a year and a half. Uh, different people say different amounts. But it doesn't matter. He goes back to his home town, his childhood home. Now, if uh, historians, if what they say is accurate, um, then Capernaum at, or Nazareth at that time had about 20,000 people. And the reason I tell you that is with 20,000 people, there had to be a number of synagogues. And so just realize that when Jesus went back to uh, uh, to Nazareth, he was going back to his home. Still making a noise, it sounds like, maybe. But um, he went back to his, his home synagogue where he grew up. And so the people there knew him. And um, last week, we looked at the passage that he read in, in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And today, we're going to see the sermon that he preached and the people's reaction. Of course, you know that they tried to kill him. And the reason we would ask that, okay, what's going on here? Uh, which mic am I on? <laughs> um, tell you what, take your Bibles, turn to Luke 4. We're going to get the microphone figured out. So let's stand together and we'll read Luke 4. Which microphone would you like me to, to use? Luke chapter 4, verse number 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. It actually teaches probably the exact opposite of our human intuition and the way that we think as human beings. And I pray, Lord, that we'll 
uh, understand and appreciate everything that went on during this time and then apply to our own lives what we need to in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. I just want to say I appreciate the sound people. I mean, the working as quickly as they did uh, with the microphones, I, I do appreciate it. I know it's embarrassing to come up here in front of everybody, but um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so Jesus' reputation has been growing, and the, the hometown boy became a renowned for his teaching and for his miracles. Word spread about him throughout Galilee. Then on one particular Sabbath, he shows up in their synagogue, and so they did what anyone would do. They asked to speak. Um, I'm going to switch over. Is that okay? All right. They, they asked him to speak, and they, they were excited with anticipation. If you look at verse number 20, look back up a couple verses, verse number 20, it says, all the eyes the eyes of all were uh, in the synagogue were fixed upon him. That word fixed, it's, it's the idea that it was, they were fastened. Their eyes were fastened on him. They did not want to miss a thing, particularly if all of a sudden he performed a miracle, right? Who wouldn't want to miss that? Have you, ever, have you ever been somewhere where there's an event and you don't want to miss the exact moment when the event happens and so you just stare at it? Well, that's similar to the idea of what's going on here. So what does Jesus do? He reads a prophecy of the ministry of the Messiah from Isaiah 61. And then he began to teach. And he, Luke summarizes teaching this way. Today, this is verse number 22, by the way, or 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse number 22 says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So far, so good, right? Um, that, that's about as far as the goodwill went. And it went all downhill from there. For their next statement was a statement of unbelief. Look at what it says. They asked this question, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, this is not the Messiah we knew this kid growing up. That, that's a, it's a statement of doubt. Now, the, the, the important thing to note is what was his message. So if you'll turn with me to Isaiah 61, we'll see the message that, that the passage that he read and the, the message that follows with it. In, in Isaiah 61... He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now Jesus stopped there, but the rest of the prophecy reads this way, And the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus left that part of the Messiah, the prophecy of the Messiah out. Why? Well, we know looking back upon it that Jesus came to proclaim salvation, didn't he? He came not only to proclaim it, he came to give salvation. That was his first coming. 
in his second coming, you, he will come and have the vengeance that is talked about there, the vengeance of the day of the Lord. They didn't understand at that point that there were the Messiah was going to come twice. This is the first and the second coming. And so by stopping at verse 2, the first part of it, he preached to them that salvation is attained by recognizing their poverty of spirit, their spiritual bankruptcy, their moral bankruptcy, their blindness of heart, their captivity to sin. But what they wanted was something different. They didn't want a Messiah to open their spiritual eyes they wanted a Messiah who would take out vengeance on all those Gentiles that were oppressing them. Right? They wanted revenge on the Gentiles that had killed them, had enslaved them, were taxing them unfairly. They hated their oppressors. And so it bothered some of them that Jesus stopped there and didn't say anything about vengeance. But remember, he stopped reading because today is the day of salvation. Vengeance is in the future. So initially, they were enamored. They were, they were stand, he is standing in front of them. I want you to realize what they were looking at. Standing in front of them was the greatest orator the world has ever seen. He was the most powerful preacher of all time. His understanding and application of Scripture was nothing like they'd ever seen. It was absolutely perfect understanding of Scripture. He had to be captivating to listen to. Mark uh, mentioned George Whitfield. I'd love to hear George Whitfield preach sometime, right? Back in the day. But their understand or his, he was far greater than anybody that we could ever imagine. He's even better than David Jeremiah, just to let you know. They, they couldn't figure out how Joseph's son had gotten here. They, they couldn't figure out how he could speak with so much understanding. But it was his message that angered them. It was his message. What his message was, and we understand that message, is that salvation is only available for the poor, right? It's only available to the prisoners and to the blind and to the oppressed. I'm talking about spiritual, spiritual prisoners, spiritual poor, spiritually oppressed. If they wanted salvation, they had to confess their spiritual poverty, their spiritual destitution, their spiritual blindness and their spiritual bondage, their spiritual oppression. But how could they admit this? They were Jews. They were people of the promise. They tithed. They were the ones that were circumcised. They were the ones that went to the synagogue every Sabbath. They were the ones that went to Jerusalem for every feast. In their lineage was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob they were the people of promise. They weren't destitute. They couldn't see it. They, they, were, they were full of spiritual pride. And it's, it's as if Jesus could read their minds. Because he said this. You look back at verses 22 and 23. He said, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, 
do here in your hometown as well. What were they telling him? What, what does this little phrase mean? Jesus was looking at them saying, actually, in your heart, what you're telling me is prove it. Do a mighty work, Jesus. Prove that you are the Messiah. The words of, of salvation were offered to them. Forgiveness, good news, release, light, and sight. But they, they had to be willing to admit that they were blind and oppressed. And that was absolutely unthinkable. No such confession would ever come out of their hearts. Their hard hearts were filled with pride and self-righteousness and, and they were, they were religiosity, if I can, if that's a word. I don't know if that's a word. I wrote it down. If it's not, let me know. They wanted proof. They wanted proof, but here's the problem. Miracles prove nothing to a skeptic. Did you know that? Later in Luke 16, Jesus will tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Are you familiar with that one? The rich man is in hell. The Bible says he lifted up his eyes being in torment. While he's down there, one of the things that he asked, he asked Abraham to send Lazarus back to preach to his brothers. Basically, the assumption is, look, if this guy will be risen from the dead, everybody will listen to him. My brothers will get saved because he rose from the dead. And this is Jesus' response in Luke 16, 31. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, admit something with me. This is completely counterintuitive to you, isn't it? It is to me. My mind tells me that if some spectacular, provable, miraculous event occurred, that would win people over. Isn't that how you naturally think? I, I, I guess I'm the only one that thinks that way. Then. No, I think everybody's afraid to answer. <laughs> it's true, though. That's, that's the way we think. But Jesus said that's not so. And the Gospels went on to prove his words were absolutely correct. Because in John chapter 11, Jesus waited four days. And there's a specific reason he waited four days, which I'll not go into now. He waited four days before he went to Bethany, right in the backyard of the temple, two miles away from the temple, and raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Different Lazarus. That's the brother of Mary and Martha. Now, most of us would think he just raised a guy from the dead. There were all kinds of witnesses surely now people will turn to Christ. But guess what? It actually had the exact opposite effect. John chapter 12, verse number 10, tells us that the chief priests made plans not only to put Jesus to death, but to put Lazarus to death. So it didn't matter to them that Jesus was obviously the Messiah. It didn't matter to them that he could perform all sorts of miracles they never denied any of the miracles that he performed. Not one of them. They knew he performed miracles. They were never going to humble themselves. So instead, they decided just to kill him. 
So miracles will never change the minds of the lost. The word of God does. And it's a word from any source or from any person. Uh, Some of you who have the same background as I do remember that there was a religious publication called The Sword of the Lord. And if you know that one publication, I know where you came from. <laughs> My, the pastor that I served under in Memphis was saved when he was playing college baseball because his grandmother sent him a copy of the Sword of the Lord, and he thought to himself, if I don't read this thing, she's, she's going to ask me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to either have to lie to her or tell her that I read it. So he read it, and he got saved from a verse that was quoted in the Sword of the Lord. And we see those testimonies all the time. But for so long, think about how we are in America. For so long, Christians in America, they, they, they clamored around any celebrity or athlete who claimed to get saved. Oh, boy, think about how much influence this person is going to have now and how many people are going to get saved and what kind of good that can do for the kingdom of God. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that way because that's the exact opposite of what scripture tells us. It doesn't matter the person. What matters is the word of God. The key is the word. The key is the word of God. The word of God saves. The source is immaterial. Isn't that wonderful to know? Because when I look at myself, I'm just a nobody. And I think, man, if somebody can get saved because I quote scripture or I give the plan of salvation to somebody, how amazing is the God that I serve, right? Now, let's get to the part that really angered everybody. You want to get there? Okay, look at verse number 23. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You got that right. He didn't miss, a, he didn't miss anything with that. Familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? I mean, we, we, live, we see it today. Uh, people will give more grace to the radio preacher than they do their people in their own church. No prophet is, is acceptable in his hometown. But Jesus now gives an illustration of, of his point about hometown prophets who have no honor. There's two illustrations here. Verse number 25, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over the, all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, I want to I stop and just remind you of a general truth. I want to help you out. I haven't said this in a while, but this is helpful when it comes to looking at your Old Testament. And Jesus actually is, stating, is showing this principle. A good way to view the narratives of the Old Testament is that they are earthly representations. They are physical, earthly representations of New Testament spiritual truths. Now, that's not 100% across the board, but you, you'll be pretty accurate if you view it this way most of the time. And these two events picture New Testament spiritual truths and Jesus is the one who made the connection, okay? That's what's important about this. So first of all, let's think about Elijah, this, this uh, illustration that Jesus gave. Who was Elijah? Elijah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel in the mid-850s B.C. Most people think his ministry career probably ended around 850 B.C. 
The kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom had been established about 100 years earlier. It was established on the basis of idolatry. You remember that? Jeroboam founded the northern kingdom. The ten tribes split off. He went to um, Bethel and to Dan and had uh, created some golden calves and said, these are your gods. This is your god. You remember that? In Elijah's time, their king was Ahab. And Ahab was a Baal worshiper. Now, he married a woman named Jezebel, and she was from Sidon, and she was a Gentile Baal worshiper, and she was the one who really pushed Ahab to worship Baal a whole lot more. Her father was the king. We find this in 1 Kings 16. I think it's around verse number 31. Her father was the king of the Sidonians, and his name was Ethbaal, and that means living with Baal, or Baal lives, one of the two, take your pick, and remember that because this is important for where we're going with this whole thing. Jezebel influenced her husband and the whole nation to worship Baal, and obviously the anger of the Lord was against the northern kingdom. The Bible makes that clear that it was. In comes Elijah. Elijah goes to King Ahab and says, it's not going to rain for the next uh, period of time until I give the word. It's not going to rain. And then he ran, which is a good thing to do. Okay? Jesus said here that the sky was shut up for three years and six months in a great famine. They were under the judgment of God, and Elijah was the one who brings the judgment. Therefore... The people hated Elijah. He was probably the most hated man in all of Israel. The king hated Elijah. Jezebel hated Elijah. Probably most everybody hated Elijah. Now, Israel was having wars with Syria and other places, and so there inevitably were a lot of widows during that time. And Jesus said in verse number 26, look at what he said, that Elijah was sent to how many of them? None. He was sent to none of them. Instead, he was sent north in the Zarephath to a widow. Not just any widow, a Gentile widow. Zarephath was a town that was between Tyre and Sidon. Tyre to the south, Sidon to the north. And uh, it's Gentile uh, territory. As you can see, the, the story's turning a bit ugly right now, isn't it? God was ignoring the widows of Israel, providing for a Gentile widow instead. And you recall the story. It's in 1 Kings 17. She was gathering sticks, and Elijah requested that she prepare a meal for, her, uh, uh, for him. And, um, but it wasn't just any meal. She, she said, I'm preparing a meal. And this meal is our last meal. This is exactly what she said. I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and for my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, this is the last of my food, Elijah. That's all that she had. Her food supply was just enough to make a little cake, eat it, and then die of starvation. And instead of saying, oh, sorry, I I must have the wrong widow here. Um, Elijah said this. Listen to what he said. He said, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. First make me a little cake, 
Bring it to me. Afterwards, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now, at that moment, she had a choice, didn't she? She could trust the God of Israel because of the words of the man who she had never met before, or she can go on with her plan. Now, what would she have done if she was from Nazareth? What would she have done if she was in that synagogue and, and Elijah had told that to her? She would, have said, she would have said, well, first, prove your words by making more oil and flour, and then I'll make your cake. Right? But that's not what she did. What do we know about that woman? I don't know if you were in 1 Kings 17 or not, but I, I skipped over a phrase that she said. In 1 Kings 17, in verse number 12, she said, As the Lord your God lives. Now, she was in the kingdom of living with Baal, Ethbaal. That's the king. She's in the kingdom of Baal lives, and instead of confessing that Baal lives, Baal is the one true God, what is she saying instead? The Lord is the one true God. And she's, she's, in, she's in a different kingdom. She's in one kingdom physically, but spiritually she seems to be headed for another kingdom, doesn't she? And the only way, the only way that she's going to know whether God would supply all she ever needed was to take the little that she had and entrust it to him. Can you imagine what she was thinking at this time? I've got one meal left. I'm destitute. I'm in poverty. I'm desperate. And I have nowhere else to turn. She literally had nowhere else to turn. If I don't trust the God of Israel who lives, I'm dead anyway. But if he is that the man that the God of Israel said he is, then he'll give her all that all she ever needed. And so she took what she had in her poverty and she trusted him with it. And she made the cake for Elijah and she lived. Isn't that a picture of salvation? We see at the moment of salvation, it is absolutely impossible for us to live apart from Jesus Christ. We are poor, destitute. We are spiritually blind. We have no ability to save ourselves. We have no ability to make ourselves alive. And we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ. Well, you remember the story, don't you? She made the cake. The prophet ate it. Next thing that happened is that her barrel was never empty. But you know what it never says? It never says that it was full. It only says it was never empty. Remember that. It was just supernaturally filled all the time. The jar of oil was never empty. It just kept getting filled and filled and filled. And that's the analogy of the Christian life, isn't it? She took what little she had, she gave it to the man of God, and in return, she got life. And that's what we do. We, we come to God, we can't save ourselves, and he gives us life. Now in this land, 
He gives us manna. And we only get manna the day we need it. Right? But one day, we will go to a place of abundance. And that will be wonderful. Well, what was Jesus trying to teach here? Well, he's trying to teach that there's only one reason why people who know the gospel don't accept Christ. And that is because they don't see themselves as poor or blind or prisoners or oppressed. People all throughout the history of the church get saved when they recognize their spiritual poverty and destitution. And while you never, you may not have thought in those words, that was what was going on at the time of your salvation as well, right? Well, Jesus told another story. This time he talked about Elisha. By the way, a little Bible trivia. You, you want to know some Bible trivia? This is the only time in the New Testament Elisha is mentioned. Verse number 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, who's Elisha? Well, he literally took the mantle from Elijah. Remember, it fell off when Elijah went to heaven. Uh, he, he was in the early 800s B.C., probably the 790. And this story is found in 2 Kings chapter number 5. And guess what? The people hated Elisha as much as they hated Elijah. Baal worship and all forms of idolatry were being practiced. God was punishing the northern kingdom through raids by the Syrians. And in one raid, a little girl was taken and made a slave to the wife of Naaman, the commander-in-chief of the army of Syria. Now we're talking about a man, he's not poverty-stricken. He's got, uh, my friend likes to say, you've got life by the tail on a downhill pole, right? He's, he's got everything he can need. He was not poverty-stricken. He was rich. He was powerful. He was famous. He had everything but his health. He had leprosy. I was laughing about this, um, not his leprosy, but I was thinking about something. I thought if there is a such thing as intersectionality of evil in, in the Bible to an Israelite, it's Naaman. Naaman met all the criteria. Think about it. He was a Gentile. Boo, right? He was the commander of the Gentile army. Boo. He, was, he killed Israelites. And the icing on the cake was he was unclean because he was a leper. He had every point of evil that you could think of. Don't walk out of here and say pastor believes in intersectionality, by the way. And this little captive girl, this little slave girl, she must have had a real love for her owners, even though they enslaved her, took her away from her family. For she said this, listen to what she said. Would that my Lord were the prophet, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so now you see a little girl who loves her enemies. You know what Jesus told us to do? Love her enemies? Obviously, he must have had some form of belief in the power of God because he goes and finds Elisha, and that's a story all in itself. Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. Right? He sent a servant out there. That's an insult, A. 
when he told him, go dip in the Jordan River, oh man, I just realized I forgot to put a picture of the Jordan River up there. You wouldn't want to dip in it either. It's dirty. And he was furious. He, he probably wanted some form of ceremony, some incantation, uh, some, something going on. Instead, he sends a servant out and says, I'll oh, go dip in the Jordan River seven times, you'll be healed. Dirty old river. Somehow, though, he realizes his desperation through one of his servants. He realizes that there's no relief and there's no cure and there's no healing except through the God of Israel. Now, how is he going to know that the word of the prophet is true? He obeys the word and then he sees the miracle, right? So he dips himself in the water seven times and he's healed. And so here's an enemy, a Gentile, somebody who has sacked and attacked and killed and plundered Israel and he's a leper. This is the outcast of all outcasts. And Jesus said, he looked right at the people in his hometown synagogue and said that of all the people, all the lepers in Israel, none of them were healed Save this Gentile. And look at Luke chapter 4, verse number 28. What does it say? It says that the people in the synagogue, were they a little perturbed? It says they were filled with wrath. They were, why were they so angry? They were angry because they didn't see themselves as spiritually needy. They saw themselves as better than the Gentiles. They had Moses. They had Abraham. They had the word of God. How could God pass over them and show mercy to a wicked Gentile who was outside the promise? Again, I know I've said this many times. They didn't see themselves as spiritually poor. They didn't see themselves as spiritually uh, captive. They were blind. They didn't see themselves as, as needing a liberty from the oppression of sin. There was no humility. There was only pride. Jesus could have actually done miracle after miracle after miracle, and it would not have phased the hardness of their hearts. As a matter of fact, it didn't. Look at verse number 29. Verse number 29 says, And they rose up and drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. There's, there's the traditional site right there outside of Nazareth. It, it probably doesn't look that high, but it is, it's pretty high if you've ever been there. Here's, a, here's another. By the way, we still have uh, about four spots left for Israel trip in next year if you want to go. Um, there's another picture. That's James. You can see that's quite a height up there, isn't it? And so they were going to throw Jesus off. The Bible says that he passed through the crowd and, and went on. But ultimately, we know by and large, and this is what's important, that the Jews rejected Jesus. Only a remnant was saved. That's the way it was in their history, and that's the way it was during the time of Jesus. During the time of Elijah, do you know how many, how many people lived in the northern kingdom? They estimate about a million and a half people during the time of Elijah and Elisha. How many does the Bible say served God? 7,000. God said, I've kept back 7,000 and haven't bowed the knee 
to, believe, to, to Baal. There were 7,000 believers. And so the accounts of Elijah and Elisha become shadows. Remember what I said. They're shadows of New Testament spiritual truth. Look at what happened. Connect the spiritual dots here. Because they rejected God and his messenger, the messengers passed them on and they went to Gentile territory. Messenger passed on and healed a Gentile. And because the Jews rejected the message of Jesus, rejected Jesus himself, he sent his apostles where? To the Gentiles. You see how that works? It's a shadow of what is to come. This is the first incident in a developing theme in Luke of the rejection of Jesus by Israel. And it's going to get stronger and more apparent as we go through the book of Luke. But let me wrap up. Unless you see yourself as spiritually destitute and bankrupt, unable to save yourself, then you cannot get saved. If there's any little bit of thought in your mind that I'm good enough to get to heaven, or maybe God will accept me, there's no way you'll make it. It is because when you see yourself to be bankrupt, and you see that you only have one choice, there is only one choice, and the choice is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, right? You only have one choice. He alone makes you worthy. He alone is worthy of the kingdom of God. He alone is the one who is worthy to be praised. He alone saves. It's Jesus Christ and no one else. No amount of miracles, no amount of celebrity conversions, no amount of of your personal charm will ever win somebody to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And my question for you today is, have you heard the word of God? Have you trusted in Christ? Do you believe that it is only through him that you are being saved, that you cannot save yourself? You can't be good enough. You can't give enough. There's no one outweighing the other. It's Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. That's the message of salvation, isn't it? Praise be to God that that is so true. I was uh, close with this illustration. I was um, met with a guy this week. I've been witnessing to him for quite some time now, some months, and um, uh, I just keep witnessing to him. And, and Mark was talking about giving testimonies. I, I met with him for lunch. And, and at this particular time, you know, I'm praying that God will open his eyes to see salvation. And so far, every time I've given the plan of salvation to him, it's, it's met with the, the, you know, the blankness. You know what I'm talking about if you've ever done it. And so this time I just gave, uh, he was asking about Heather. He knew about uh, us going to Arizona and, and all of that. And so I just gave testimony and I just kept injecting, this is what God did. This is what God did. This is what God did. This is somebody who doesn't know Christ, but he, he's willing every time I meet with him to subject himself to me witnessing to him and telling him about Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to do. That is our job. So my, my next challenge is, are you, when you walk out from here, are you telling people Jesus is the way? There is judgment coming, but Jesus is the ark that gets you through judgment. 
Jesus paid the wrath so you don't have to. Jesus paid it all. And he, it's, it's his robes of righteousness, his good works placed upon you that allows you entrance into heaven. And so when you stand before Jesus Christ and God says, why should I let you into heaven? You can say, because of him. Because I'm wearing his righteousness. Because you promised that if I put my faith and trust in him, you see me with as much affection and you see the righteousness of Christ being placed upon me. Isn't that a wonderful story? Isn't it wonderful to be able to walk out and tell people that and know that if they, if they say no, if they don't want to hear it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we will pray and pray and pray that the Lord saves the ones that we witness to. Amen? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, how much it tells us about the spiritual state of people, what it tells us about Jesus Christ himself, and how that we can be saved. Lord, I pray right now, if there are people here who have been thinking of themselves as pretty good, and they don't see their destitution, they don't see their the de their desperate need of Jesus Christ, that you will open their eyes, open their minds to understand the wonderful truths of salvation in the desperate place that they are in at this particular moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.